many people have a, a fear, and in my opinion, an unwarranted fear of finance because they believe that it's just all about the numbers, potentially because they see so many numbers. But actually, the biggest challenge in finance is actually the language and the terminology. So you need to understand what you're looking at. Success in business is simply not what it used to be. If you want to thrive in an ever-evolving business environment, you must first change your mindset. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Boardroom podcast, an exclusive masterclass for business executives who want to drive change from the top. I am Diana Markaki, proud founder of The Boardroom, the first private club of the most influential women executives in Europe and around the world. At Unlocking the Boardroom, we unpack the challenges and opportunities of this brave new world, writing the first boardroom manual for the future generation of leaders. In today's episode, we will discuss how non-finance executives can succeed in the boardroom. By the end of this masterclass, you will learn how to understand financial matters even if you do not come from a finance background. What are some common financial mistakes that non-finance board members make? How can board members ensure that they're asking the right financial questions and making the right decisions for the company? Joining us today is Stuart Warner, an internationally renowned finance expert and the author of four finance books, or as I like to refer to him, The Finance Whisperer. Stuart is the course leader of Module 3 of the Boardrooms Board Readiness Program and is helping our members that don't have a finance background to develop the practical financial expertise that is needed at the board level. We couldn't think of a better guest for today's episode to help us get to grips with finance. Stuart, welcome to the Boardrooms Podcast. We're thrilled to have you on the show today. You and I know each other quite well. You have been on the boardroom journey since the very beginning. You have been serving on our advisory board and you have been training our members both in Greece and in Switzerland on all matters finance. You're probably the only finance expert that I know who can actually make finance fun. So before we get all technical with these complex financial matters, I would like our audience to get to know you a little bit through our first five session. We like to keep things, you know, fun and light over here. So get ready for some rapid fire questions. Stuart, are you ready for this? Yes, let's go. All right. First question. Coffee or tea? Definitely coffee. Are you an early bird or a night owl? 100% night owl. Now I need to ask, what is your guilty pleasure? Mmm, tricky question. I've got lots of these. <laughs> so um, right now, I'll probably go for a, a cheesecake with a biscuit base. What is your favorite city to visit, either for work or for pleasure? Oh, another tough question. I've got lots of these as well. I'll probably have to say Zurich, followed closely by Athens. <laughs> and finally, the most important question of all. What is your go-to karaoke song? We won't judge, we promise. <laughs> well, if you know me, I'd probably run a mile before doing karaoke. It is not my um, choice. 
activity. However, if I had to choose, I'd probably go back to my youth and think of my first 12-inch extended remix vinyl that I purchased, which was Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel, the song White Lines. Do you know that one? Oh, yes. Okay. I did not expect that. <laughs> A great song. So now you are an author of four finance books. So I know it sounds a lot like asking you to pick your favorite child, but which book was the most fun to write and why? Yes, well, my actually the latest book I've written, which is the second edition of the finance book. And it's almost like a fifth book because we rewrote it again. It's absolutely my favorite because this is the culmination of all of my years of writing and it's something I'm really proud of. I think it's an absolutely excellent book. I'm really um, really happy with it. Wonderful. So now you spend most of your time helping executives that are not finance experts, so people like me, to better understand financial matters in the business. So tell me a little bit about, you know, where did your journey begin and, and where has it taken you? Yeah, so I, I started back in the early 1990s and I worked for one of the big four accounting firms which became PwC and to take a break from the accounting I was lucky enough to get a secondment to the internal training department and I enjoyed it so much I asked for another secondment and another and another and eventually I thought this is so much fun I'm going to do this full-time so I joined a permanent full-time training company and that was actually training finance professionals as training accountants to be accountants and then some years later I moved into training non-finance professionals people um, in the real world and I absolutely loved it and still still do to this day and I've been privileged enough to do this around the world so I've been to many countries from the USA Southeast Asia Middle East even Australia and of course all over Europe as well so at the boardroom, as you know, a large part of our board educational program is focused on actually you know, developing financial expertise at the board level. Why, in your opinion, is it so critical for non-finance board members to actually have a deep understanding of financial matters? Yeah, great question. So you, you can be an expert in, as you say, marketing, HR, engineering, and you can keep your discipline to your area. But finance is one of these disciplines which actually impacts on everybody in the organization. It's so critical to understand. And I could probably give you about four reasons why it's so important. Firstly, because of strategic decisions. And above all, you need to understand the financial implication of your decisions because we're all trying to achieve long-term sustainability. And that all links back to finance. Secondly, because of risk, risk management. A lot of the risks facing the organization are relation to finance, and we have to understand those and develop strategies as a board to mitigate them. Thirdly, as a board, we have to allocate resources in the best way. Minimal. We have to allocate our limited resources in the best way in order to maximize our returns. And something finance is very important to that. And finally, I would say it's down to communication. As um, Warren Buffett said, finance is the language of business. So whether you're communicating to potential investors, existing investors, shareholders, 
financiers, customers, suppliers, employees, whoever you're speaking to, having a good understanding of financial matters can really help you to communicate effectively to these stakeholders. So communication is an interesting one. I did not expect that, but you're absolutely right. It is, you know, the language of business. So from your experience, what are the most, let's say, misconceptions that, you know, non-finance professionals, for example, you know, legal experts, HR or marketing actually have about finance? Many people have a fear and, in my opinion, unwarranted fear of finance because they believe it's just all about the numbers, potentially because they see so many numbers. But actually, the biggest challenge in finance is actually the language and the terminology. So you need to understand what you're looking at and what it relates to. And the reason that many non-finance people have this fear is probably down to poor presentation and communication from the finance team. So I would encourage all non-finance directors to push back to the finance team and ask for better presentation. Can you have a visualization as opposed to a table of numbers and to explain things clearly? Because once you invest the time in understanding finance and the terminology, if it's presented in the right way, finance can be a very, very accessible discipline. So do you have any, you know, real life examples and lessons that you could share with us today for, you know, especially aspiring board members to take note? Yes, absolutely. Let's, um, let's look at some stories, shall we? So we, get, we can look at three examples and stories today. I'm very excited. Yeah. And what I thought might be interesting to talk to you about is examples of corporate scandals and fraud. Mm. Everybody which, loves um, those, right? As long as we're not on the board of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of, the, <laughs> one of the lessons is to make sure you do your due diligence before you join a board and don't get involved in these companies here. So yes, these are all really good stories. They could all make television programs. And to start with Greek, the Greek company, this company I'm sure you've heard of called Folly Folly. Oh yes, uh, I, I thought you were gonna mention that. Yeah, the jewelry company, yes. Absolutely, so this, yes, that's how they started in, in the 80s. They started in a very small store in Athens and they expanded over the years and ended up in 30 countries. Oh wow, I did not know that. And it wasn't just um, jewellery. They had many different brands. You may have heard of Lynx of London, Juicy Couture. Oh, yes. Okay. Some of the duty-free shops as well. And um, oh, there was also... They're really diversified. Sport- okay. Yeah. Sports retailer as well. And they actually expanded really aggressively into new markets around the world. And in particular, Asia, which is where a lot of the issues started to happen. And the very high profile company, um, by the time the scandal hit in 2017, their revenue was 1.1 billion euros. Mm. So um, a huge entity um, listed on the Greek Stock Exchange. So um, a really interesting case study. So what happened? Yeah, so in 2018, this is when this um, fraud was exposed and the company actually announced that the last seven years of its financial statements oh, wow. have been, yeah, seven years have been materially misstated. And as a result, the share price plummeted and its debt was downgraded to junk status. And as we'll discover, it led to several lawsuits and investigations um, as well. So who committed the fraud? Yeah, well, actually, there's been many individuals who've been prosecuted. So currently, there's actually 13 people on trial. There was at least another 16 suspects. 
Um, but the key people who've been prosecuted are the family, uh, the uh, head of the business. Uh, you have to help me out with the Greek here. So there's um, Dimitris Koutasolatus and um, his wife Katerina and his son George as well. So um, the legal proceedings are actually still ongoing. It's going to be several years before this is resolved. So who discovered the fraud after 70 years? It was actually a hedge fund. So um, in May 2018, a hedge fund called Quintessential Capital Management, or QCM, they actually made an allegation. And it's worth me actually reading it out to you because it's so incredible what they said. They said that the image that the financial statements, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit to summarise it, the image from the financial statements was a rapidly growing multinational fashion company that had double-digit growth. What they found, though, was after their investigation, they found impossible to reconcile the picture with their actual findings on the ground. And what they said is what they found was an unprofitable, struggling company with materially smaller and rapidly decreasing revenue size and cash that actually the picture presented itself. So really, really different picture to the financial statements were saying. So were there any warning signs? Yeah, absolutely quite a few of these. So one sign that's pretty common to a lot of these instances is rapid growth. So they rapidly grew, they had over a thousand stores. So if that growth isn't supported by an increase in profits, it doesn't follow through to the cash, this can often be a warning sign. Their financial performance was quite unusual and wasn't just 2018. Way back in 2015, the Financial Times wrote an article by a journalist called Dan McCrum. And what he said is he looked at the sales and the profits and he said, it's very unusual. I've got so many trade receivables and the actual largest subsidiary of the company worth almost 2 billion euros, whereas where the most of the receivables was found, was actually a really small Hong Kong accounting firm. Unbelievable. And it was very strange. What they also saw in the Financial Times was that although they showed 1.1 billion of profits from 2005 to 14, so we added up all the years, and um, even though over all those years it was 1.1 billion of profits, there was only 300 million of operating cash. So normally what you'd expect to call this the cash conversion ratio for the profits to be more or less the same as cash, hopefully. But there was considerably less cash coming out. And after CapEx, it was only down to 70 million euros. So really he was asking the question, where is the cash, where is the cash gone? And the other warning sign was down to related party transactions. And this is how they really got away with a lot of the fraud, is they had a real complex web of affiliated companies intercompany loans, and this was obscuring the actual financial picture of it um, overall. But again, it took seven years, so, so I assume the impact was quite big. Huge, yeah. So this was, remember, this is a very high-profile company. So um, it was delisted from the Stock Exchange, Athens Stock Exchange. They had to file for bankruptcy. Several executives were arrested and charged with fraud, as we mentioned before. And it had a really big impact on the economy in Greece as well and um, the reputation of it, and uh, made some major changes in corporate governance. So since then, the Greek government have launched a new regulatory agency. They've put new transparency and accountability practices in place. They've put a series of reforms um, as well to make sure companies are following best practice corporate governance. 
and the increased scrutiny of audit firms um, as well. So I think most people in Greece will have heard of this particular case because it's really had a huge impact. So let's move across now. Now going to move into the UK. And we're going to talk about a cafe. So if you've been to the UK, you'll have seen this chain of cafes because it's very, very well known. They had, at the height, they had 200 stores across the country and it's called Patisserie Valerie. So um, it started off, I mean, this went all the way back to 1926 and had a number of owners, but actually in 2006, a private equity group called Risk Capital Partners took it over. Now, you may have heard also of the company Pizza Express. Yes. The person who grew Pizza Express was a guy called Luke Johnson, who headed up Risk Capital Partners. And his um, group took it over and they opened all these shops and it had at its height 114 million of revenue. So basically, this was another accounting scandal, um, which was down to serious irregularities. And what they found was um, a fraud here. And... There's all sorts of false accounting entries um, over a number of years. And uh, this was a listed business, by the way, and it had to spend its um, trading on the stock exchange. And a lot of money was lost at the end of the day. Um, in fact, it was um, to give you an idea of the fraud, is they said they had a cash balance of just under £30 million. And what they actually found was that there were £10 million in debt. So a difference of £38 million. They found unauthorised and unreported overdrafts. Unbelievable. The actual, yeah, the scale of the black hole eventually went up to £94 million. So then what happened? So um, what it was found is, the interesting thing is how it was discovered was in 2018, the company made an announcement that it found significant fraudulent accounting irregularities. And it actually asked for its shares to be suspended from trading on a stock exchange at a time. And it came out actually the same day that this was down to um, a winding up petition from the UK tax authority, which is called the HMRC. And it's because they hadn't paid their tax bill. So it was just over a million pounds was outstanding. And the tax authorities said enough is enough. And they demanded, and this is how it all, all unwound. Okay, so um, let me tell you about who instigated this fraud, because this is a very interesting one. This time it was the CFO, a guy called Chris Marsh, that was the mastermind behind it. And Chris Marsh had a lot of control over the accounting system. And I think there's some great lessons here for boards, about actually the power that's in the hands of the finance director. And um, he created, over a number of years, false accounting entries. He manipulated the accounts. And he'd actually made it very difficult for other people to spot these irregularities. So it's a very, very skilled fraud, in fact. Yeah, so let, let's look at the what the signs were there. So if you were a director of this business or an employee, how could you have spotted this? Well, one of the core signs, which is the reason that the HMRC spotted this, was the lack of cash because there was checks being bounced. And as we mentioned, the, the missed tax bill as well. And the suppliers were complaining. We were supposed to pay their suppliers in 60 days. But in fact, they started to pay them in 120 days. So there was legal actions coming in from the suppliers. And I even heard that some of the employees had not received 
their wages. The auditor this time was a company, um, a medium-sized firm called Grant Thornton. And um, they had all sorts of issues as well. So it's always worth directors looking out for the issues that the auditors raised. And this was to do with their inventory. Now, there's a report that went um, after the fraud. It was all investigated. And I read one of the reports into Grant Thornton's um, audit. And what they found was when they looked into where the revenue came from, this is a great warning sign, they found that they had a lot of revenue coming from gift vouchers. <laughs> okay. And what they found was that of that, 73% of it came from one single company. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these strange behaviours. There was also, when it came to bank accounts, that the CFO was allowed to activate dormant accounts and reuse them without informing the management. And um, the other warning sign is that the growth, once again, the growth, they rapidly expanded the business. And you've always got to say, you know, where's the money coming from to finance this expansion? Does it stack up? So this had a it had a huge um, impact. Um, the company was delisted. Luke Johnson, I mentioned before, lost a lot of money. They closed quite a lot of the stores. Um, out of the 200 stores, there's only 95 remaining um, now. It was actually a management buyout um, in the end. A lot of people lost their jobs. 900 people lost their jobs um, as well. And there was claims for damages and still being investigated at this point in time. So what's the third one? Yeah, so let's um, go now to probably the biggest one of all. This is a massive European scandal. So we're now going to move back over a little bit east into Germany. And this company was Wirecard. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, huge, huge, um, really high-profile German fintech company. And they provided digital payment solutions. So basically, when you buy something on the internet or um, in a store, this they, they did the connection between the banks and the actual customers. So they were, they were the middlemen, effectively, um, processing these transactions. And at their height, they were handling billions of euros around the world um, every single week. And it was a startup, correct? Yeah, so it, the CEO, Marcus Brunn, he actually became a millionaire in the company. He acquired a stake in it in 2008, and then he grew it. Um, it was in the, um, the one of the top stocks in Germany Stock Exchange, the DAX 30. And um, at its height, it had 2 billion euros of revenue. Oh, wow. So, you know, think about that size. It's, it's yes. um, double folly folly. There were 5,000 employees and it was worth 24 billion euros. So it's really important to the German um, economy. And it all, the House of Cards came tumbling down in mid-2020. And um, they revealed at that stage that they had almost 2 billion euros missing. <laughs> so who committed the fraud in this case? Well, there's a number of key figures that um, are under investigation, and it all kind of comes from the top, this Marcus Brung, who was the CEO at the time. There was also the COO called um, Jan Marslak, and he actually, he's on the run at the moment. They haven't actually caught up with him yet. And the, the last I heard um, was actually he's um, in Russia somewhere. A number of executives around the world um, as well, the former CFO, a former chief accounting officer, these people are all being investigated. So this was not just one person like Patisserie Valerie, although in Patisserie Valerie there was a few people there. This was kind of widespread throughout the organisation. So what were the warning signs in this case, apart from the two billion missing? 
So this is actually, this is a, it's a really good hats off to both investigative journalism and um, once again, the hedge funds, the short sellers, they're really the heroes in this story here. And the person we mentioned before for Financial Times, Dan McCrum, he was the key journalist. And for a number of years, actually, he had been highlighting uh, concerns about the um, financial reporting. He just said it doesn't stack up. So they had, um, for example, um, a very large portion of their sales and profits were attributed to one of their subsidiaries called Al-Alam. He investigated this Al-Alam and he said, well, Visa and MasterCard, which are the two biggest payment processors in the world, haven't got a relationship with them. And he looked at the clients um, of this organization as well. And he said, well, they actually don't know. <laughs> the clients that are listed don't know who Al-Alam are, but um, <laughs> now they've processed 350 million euros of payments for it. So basically, he started to discover things didn't stack up. As mentioned, the um, hedge funds, the short sellers, they're involved as well. And there's actually a report that was published, a public domain report by a group of short sellers called Zatara, who um, questioned a lot of the practices there as well. So sometimes you have to just look at the market, what they're saying and read the media. They had faced some scrutiny as well. So not in Germany, incidentally enough, the German regulators were really, many people say at fault here, but actually in other countries. So um, in Singapore, they'd been um, raided their offices. There's also, if you, if you look at the top, look at the board, a quite high turnover of senior executives who were leaving the company. And so um, why are people leaving um, so regularly? So there's quite a number of warning signs there. Uh, interesting that the uh, German regulators were not actually investigating this case as opposed to, to Singapore, but I assume it could have been maybe like the national pride. It was like a you know, startup. You know, do you think it could have been anything around that? Well, um, it's it's about how the regulators are structured in Germany. So it's much more localised and um, to do with the number of people they put onto the investigation. Yeah, so, I mean, these things will never be proved, obviously. But yes, um, it, it was very important to Germany, this business as a whole. But certainly the BaFin, who was the German financial regulator, they faced a lot of criticism for not investigating them properly. So what was the impact here at Wirecard? Well, huge, um, huge losses. So this was a hugely valuable company and many investors um, lost billions of euros as a result. Um, there's been a, a massive overhaul in regulation, um, as we just talked about as well, and um, a lot of trust. So the investing and the public at large need to um, have a trust in the corporate governance. And this has really shaken that trust as well. As mentioned before, there's been criminal investigations and it's also had repercussions for auditors. So um, EY, who is the auditor here, they've been banned for auditing public companies for two years in Germany. And um, that's really, it's really impacted their reputation. And um, it's not just EY, KPMG was also involved. So when this 2 billion euros are mentioned, when it was originally said, okay, it's missing. So KPMG, they went to investigate it. And um, they did actually say at the time is that they weren't able to find enough evidence. They weren't able to have sufficient evidence that it was available. But what they didn't do is they didn't undercover the fraud. So it wasn't just about the two billion. There was a massive fraud going on behind this um, as well. So um, there's lots of people to, to blame. There's an excellent book, actually. So Dan McCrum, he's written a book called Money Men, 
which talks all about um, how it happened and his experience. There's lots of information in the public domain about this. It's a huge story. Can we see any, any parallels between each of the three examples? So both the, all these companies, um, all three of these companies, had used accounting fraud to inflate their performance. So they were effectively trying to deceive investors and, and also board members, the board members who weren't in with it um, as well. They manipulated the financial data. So this is all, it's all down to concealing losses, trying to make revenues and profits seem larger, um, larger than they, they were. An interesting commonality as well is the reaction of these companies when there was accusations against them. So both Wirecard and Folly Folly, as I mentioned when we're talking through them, the Financial Times and short sellers made accusations and they aggressively denied it. So it, it reminds me of that um, Shakespeare quote um, about doth protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan McCrum, if you read some of the things that he's written, he, he was he, sure that um, his phone was tapped, people were following him, there was legal threats back to the newspaper. So um, it's about how they react to these. There's certainly a lack of transparency. And another commonality between these is very complex accounting, complex group structures, lots of different companies. They all had accounting irregularities. And in the information, this is the reason the journalists spotted it, there was lots of inconsistencies. So the, the actual data was not backing up the story. They had, um, throughout the group, large intercompany transactions. This always makes it hard to follow what's happening. A large number of subsidiaries, they were hiding off balance sheet transactions. Um, so putting loans through these and investments through these subsidiaries that were not consolidated and you weren't seeing them into the main accounts. So related party transactions is a lot of the key to um, the commonality between these. So what lessons can we learn from all this? And, and in general, what are some... Uh common financial mistakes, so to speak, that non-finance board members make or um, how can we avoid them? Yeah, this this is the key. Is that This is the most important thing is what can we do as board members to avoid this? So for me, one of the number one areas a board should think about is risk. We've got to have a risk-focused board and particularly financially focused as well. And where we see I mean, there's always expression, follow the money. Where does the money come from? If there's an increase in sales, where, where's that coming from? Where's it being supported? So um, focusing on the risks and following the money, I think is a really important area. What I'd like to see in organizations I'm involved in is strong financial controls. We want to make sure there's clear policies and procedures for systems and um, reporting. And there's no reason why a board director can't um, take a tour around the business and ask these questions. So um, what's the system for making purchases here? How's a, how's a sale followed through? To make sure that the financial control systems um, are in place. And one of the key controls I'd expect to see in all organisations is segregation of duties. So we talked about patisserie Valerie before, and the CFO had too much control. And um, so they were able to obtain unauthorised overdrafts. So there should be multiple signatures um, when transactions above a certain threshold take place. There should be lots of monitoring to detect irregularities and to pick out potentially suspicious activities. And I think 
audit plays a huge role, both externally and internally. So as directors, we should pay close attention to what the external auditors are telling us in their management letters. And if we're if we have the benefit of internal audit, that's a really important element to have as well. So um, as a board member, listen to the answers to question. Are the answers clear? Does the story fit with the numbers? Um, also, we can have a look at um, making sure the organisations have whistleblowing mechanisms in place. So with Wirecard, one of the reasons that Dan McCrum was able to investigate it so successfully is a whistleblower actually gave him some data. So he had access to internal information and emails, which made it clear as well. So having a situation where whistleblowers are able to raise concerns without fear of retaliation, I think this is really critical. When it comes to financial reporting, I think we need to have lots of transparency. So you can spot by reading a set of accounts or reading the board packs, if there's transparency there, can we follow transactions through? Do we follow accounting standards? Awesome, before we talked about the markets with participatory Valerie. So be aware of what's happening with competitors. Be aware of what's happening in the marketplace. What are journalists saying? What are the short sellers doing as well? And I think finally, one lesson can be learnt, which is how the UK, Germany and Greece have all reacted, is having stronger regulatory oversight for both companies and auditors. So many important, you know, um, takeaways and, and lessons learned and, you know, nuggets of wisdom. Thank you so much, Stuart. And fascinating stories. Indeed, it could be a Netflix series. So maybe we can follow up with a second episode. But before we wrap this up, and again, I would be listening to you for hours, Stuart. There's one last summary question that we ask each guest on the podcast. So what are the three qualities that an executive need to have in order to become a successful board member? Well, number one, you could probably guess, I'm going to say, is a strong financial expertise and awareness. So you, if you're a board director, you need to understand the company's operations and its financial reporting and um, educate yourself in financial awareness. Thankfully, there's some good resources out there in the world to do that. I would say um, number two is to have a healthy professional scepticism about financial information that you receive. So don't blindly accept financial information that you've been given. Ask questions. You know, think about your understanding of the business and does it stack up with the numbers? Challenge assumptions. If you don't understand information, feel free to question it. And um, thirdly, that actually links me into the third one, which is to have the confidence to ask what you may think is a silly question and actually is probably the best question that you can ask. Because what you'll find is everybody around the room who's non-finance is thinking, I wish I'd asked that question. <laughs> so um, having the confidence to ask questions, which comes from financial training, I think that's absolutely key. I love those qualities, and especially the third one, have the courage to ask even the silly question. Thank you very much, Stuart, for sharing your insights, your expertise, making finance so approachable and even a little bit fun. It was lovely having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. You can follow The Boardroom's mission on LinkedIn or visit our website. For more episodes, hit the subscribe button to secure your seat inside the boardroom.